Section 39 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 4. The Return of the Bourbons. Eight days after the departure of Napoleon for his microscopic empire of Elba, the Count of Artois entered France at Nancy as lieutenant-general of the kingdom. The first of the royal princes to leave France, he was also the first to return. Though something of a fool, and not over-fond of risking his skin, Artois was every inch a royal figure, handsome, elegant, generous. He was at once very religious, and essentially frivolous, devout, noble, courteous. There was enough of the night about him to please the taste of a romantic age, and we are just coming to the romantics. But fate was unkind to Artois in bringing him into power. He was cast by nature for the part of a pretender, and had not learned how to play the king. Chateaubriand dubbed him the Christian knight, and added, He has aged a good deal since I sketched him thus, but there is still a likeness. Poetic stories were rife concerning him, how, for instance, on the death of Madame de Polastron he had sworn never to love another woman, and had kept his word, mere Lothario as he had been until then. He was as full of prejudices and obstinacies and ignorances as a charming, narrow-minded prince may be on the shady side of fifty. His brother was a very different person. The staunchest royalists quailed a little when they thought of Louis the Eighteenth entering critical and half-disaffected Paris as the successor of Napoleon. Artois had been first and foremost in all the royalist intrigues, but at least you knew where you had him. There was something selfish and neutral about the sceptical Louis, generally inclined, like his brother Louis says, to think that in every question there was a great deal to be said on both sides. Naturally liberal, the circumstances of his life in exile, hunted from refuge to refuge as the advance of Napoleon dislodged him from Poland, from Prussia, from Italy, and the haunting memory of his murdered kinsfolk, had fostered in him incoherent rancors and sudden transitory rages little less violent than his brother's convictions. Such explosions were rare. All these chances and changes had developed in Louis the Eighteenth a certain moral indifference, a detachment from men and things, an absence of belief in anything, a disenchanted misanthropy natural under the circumstances in a prince whose experience had been so cruel and whose nature was shrewd, wise, delicate, intelligent but bitter and small a quoter of horace a lover of letters perhaps an author under the rose this fastidious gouty and indolent valetudinarian saw himself promoted to the stormiest throne in europe louis the eighteenth accumulated in his person all sorts of reasons why paris should dislike him some of the citizens could remember how monsieur had solemnly sworn never to leave the kingdom in February 1791, and had successfully decamped in June. The soldiers knew that he had fought with the Prussians at Valmy. He had more physical courage than his brother. When the first victory of the Republic had put him and his emigre to the rout. 
and for years now he had lived in england returning in the unpopular character of a country squire from buckinghamshire a gouty old anglais of sixty impotent enormous in bulk his helpless legs wrapped to the knees in wadded gaiters ignorant of the recent growth of france he was however dignified and liberal in mind he had not lived so many years in england for nothing his first act was to grant a charter that is to say a political constitution which established in france the parliamentary system ensured the liberty of public worship while declaring the catholic church the religion of the state professed all men equal before the law and the tax collector admitted in a certain degree the liberty of the press confirmed the existence of napoleon's new nobility recognized all the debts of the state whatever their origin and guaranteed the holders of confiscated estates in the possession of their lands by whomsoever forfeited it was a charter informed with the spirit of eighty nine but the king returned to france surrounded by a world of emigres who would die rather than countenance that spirit far more than the king and even more than artois they had learned nothing and forgotten nothing what were the feelings of the french when the allies with their triumphant armies escorted the bourbons to paris the prospect of peace so long desired in vain made at the first blush any change appear acceptable twenty years of constant battle had exhausted the nation and the last two wars russia spain had brought home to the people the terrible conviction that under napoleon peace would never be attained since he would fight for the pleasure of it for mere conquest and magnificence in spite of the despair of his subjects doubtless the first movement at the fall of bonaparte was not unlike that which saluted the fall of robespierre there were those who like necker's daughter madame de stal said openly that the defeat of bonaparte meant the happiness of france but when the people of paris saw the conquering armies those armies they had been used to vanquish marching proudly through their streets there came a sudden revulsion of feeling listen to the same madame de stal when i saw paris occupied by their foreign armies ignorant of our language our history our great men and the tartar sentries pacing in front of the tuileries and the louvre i felt a pang beyond endurance chateaubriand another enemy of bonaparte who like germaine necker had returned to paris in the train of the allies shall be our next witness i own he says that i dreaded the first impression produced by the king the impotent old gentleman from buckinghamshire was so strange an equivalent for the terrible adored and dreaded emperor yet above those swollen feet those legs muffled in their ludicrous gaiters a l'antique above that huge belly that unwieldy frame there was a firm pink face not unhandsome rather noble an eye witty and wise an expression of unruffled majesty louis the eighteenth had no doubts as to his rights or his reception he was merely the first monarch in europe returning home and this is what chateaubriand saw at his entry on the third of may eighteen fourteen when the king went to notre dame 
to spare the sovereign the spectacle of a foreign army occupying his capital the streets were lined with the soldiers of napoleon's old guard and they contemplated the man who had vanquished their emperor i think i have never seen on any human visage an expression so threatening so terrible as i saw on all of theirs these grenadiers the conquerors of europe covered with wounds deprived of their leader and forced to salute an old king invalided not by his victories but by his years under compulsion of the russians austrians prussians who occupied napoleon's invaded capital some of them frowning under their huge fur busbies till they masked their eyes affected not to see their sovereign others drew down the corners of their mouth in the bitterest grimace of contempt and rage and there were some who snarled like tigers their teeth gleaming through their fierce moustaches when the time came to present arms their aspect was such as to make the mere spectator tremble it was a strange paris white scarves and ribbons fluttered everywhere in the streets the quaintly shabby figure of the emigre hastening home from all the corners of europe greeted each other with a courtliness of phrase and a grace of gesture unknown to the magnificent barbarity of the empire the streets were full of cossacks pomeranian grenadiers and diplomatists from every court there were as many sovereigns in paris as during the palmy days of the empire but though louis the eighteenth slept in the bed of bonaparte the real king of paris was alexander the two monarchs were on less enthusiastic terms than france and russia had been at tilsit and at erfurt the haughty calm of louis displeased the young autocrat who had brought him back from exile thrones fall republics are reversed emperors banished kings come to their own again the surface of french history appears a sequence of whirlpools and yet life continues and france has to be administered and in fact is administered with a continuity of order which at first sight appears miraculous behind the facade of sovereignty which so often tumbles down and has hastily to be replaced in another style there is a solid rock of building which contains the government offices the king and artois knew nothing of the needs and requirements of the france they revisited after a lapse of thirty years since their departure the country had been subject to many a phase of power the republic the reign of terror the directory the consulate the empire and had survived them all thanks to the admirable civil service working steadily in the background and fortunately there still remained in france two ministers who had been through most of these administrations men of great capacity one of whom at least had the advantage of being personally known to the allied sovereigns these were talleyrand and fouche the king of france refused at first the services of fouche who had voted the death of louis xvi and was in part responsible for the massacre of the royalists at lyons under the terror but he accepted the ministry of talleyrand a man of birth and breeding on whom b p this was the king's graceful fashion of alluding to his predecessor buona parte had conferred no additional honour when he dubbed him prince of benevento talleyrand had been for five-and-twenty years a moving force in french history 
we saw him first on the champ de mars when as bishop of autun he said the mass of federation before the king and the assembled people a little later he organized for the constituent assembly a scheme of popular education next he was danton's colleague and collaborator under robespierre he had fallen into disgrace and no circumstance could better have favoured his fortunes in eighteen fourteen he had been a pillar of the directory and yet he had helped to overthrow it in order to establish the consulate in seventeen ninety seven he was bonaparte's counsellor and confidant between them they arranged the invasion of egypt and throughout the first glorious years of empire talleyrand had administered the conquests of napoleon then came their quarrel in eighteen ten and here was talleyrand back again and the emperor at elba talleyrand had now in front of him the most difficult task of all his career after a preliminary treaty at paris it was decided that the sovereigns and statesmen of europe should meet in congress at vienna in order to divide among themselves the spoils of napoleon's empire the allied armies and their thousands continued to occupy france while the french continued to hold some fifty european citadels including such strong places as hamburg antwerp mantua the fortresses of belgium the rhine and piedmont there was still the magnificent remnant of the french army it is just possible that the country might have made better terms than were offered for the treaty of paris but france panted for peace with a sort of exasperation the foreign armies were there in possession cossacks russians austrians croats germans prussians english dangerous tenants each with their wrongs to avenge it was better if possible to remain with them on amicable terms besides talleyrand's manner was seldom the maniere forte he was yielding insidious perfidious claiming nothing yet little by little filching appropriating a great deal nothing could have been humbler than his advent at the congress of vienna he was no longer the brilliant host the great statesman of the rue saint florentin who had housed the emperor alexander as his guest the abjection of france was expressed in his very mien he represented a sort of poor relation of the great powers whose bankruptcy was putting them to a great deal of trouble humble serviceable amiable talleyrand was content with anything they offered his great phrase was la france ne demande rien in the ambassador's saloon the four great powers england austria russia prussia confabulated apart by an insolent protocol they had arranged that they alone should distribute the spoils of napoleon while france so to speak was left to wait outside in the hall with spain portugal sardinia naples the netherlands bavaria wurtemberg saxony denmark and sweden in this humiliation talleyrand found his opportunity he reverted to the classic policy of france the policy of richelieu which always has been to constitute the king of france the champion and elder brother of the smaller sovereigns and as richelieu had opposed this following of small states to the mighty agglomerations of austria and spain so talleyrand intended to counterbalance the foreign council by a sort of league or entente of the lesser thrones 
who on some country hillside has not seen the kestrel or the cuckoo put to flight by a flock of doves or swallows the true policy of france has always been to neutralize ruin or disperse the great agglomerations in order to secure the advantage of the secondary powers while talleyrand consulted his companions in exclusion the mighty four who thought to dispose of europe at their own sweet will found it increasingly difficult to agree among themselves a general conflagration appeared imminent the king of prussia wanted saxony which russia was half inclined to let him have in exchange for his share of poland austria meant at all costs to regain her suzerainty in italy talleyrand as spokesman of the smaller powers could not have cornered a united four he found them almost at daggers drawn and profited by the occasion to reintroduce france into the upper room on equal terms as a welcomed fifth welcomed that is by two of the disputants while he organized with a view to balancing the friendship between russia and prussia a new and surprising entente between austria england and france a war between the two leagues appeared close at hand bavaria Württemberg, and the netherlands signified their adhesion to the franco-austrian english alliance the coalition of the four is destroyed wrote talleyrand to louis the eighteenth france marches with two of the greatest powers in europe with three secondary states and others will join us all those whose principles and maxims are opposed to the revolution france is the soul and the leader of a union formed to put in practice the principles she has proclaimed in fact talleyrand was radiant so far as that cold and distant face could reveal an emotion but one evening in march at a ball given by metternich he was seen to turn paler than ever he had received news troublesome distracting news it was evident that the cards would have to be reshuffled indeed when he had imparted this surprising message there was an end of all debate and rivalry between the powers who during six months had quarrelled and bargained interminably there was some question of war indeed but not war among themselves the lion had got loose napoleon was in france End of section thirty nine